today is April 5th, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Gord Fischel, who is a professor of physiology and neuroscience and, uh, and associate director of the NYU Neuroscience Institute at the NYU School of Medicine. Did I get that right? Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Great. Thank you. His lab studies the developmental uh, genetic determinants that specify the diversity of cortical interneuron subclasses and the rules by which specific subclasses integrate into the developing cerebral cortex. Hi, Gord. Hi. <laughs> uh, around the room, we've got uh, Carlos Palladini. Hello. Hey, you're back. I'm back after a hiatus. Major hiatus. Uh, and we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And we've got Gary Gaufo. Hello. Nice to see you again. I, I think I've been here once before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, um, so let's just get into it. The functional and morphological diversity of, of local circuit interneurons is is, uh, is so key to much of the brain's information processing capacity. And I guess it's it's clear to I guess to me why so many studies focus on the detailed differences between interneurons, um, their subclasses and subclasses to get at um, the unique computational strategies of you know of, of, of various networks. So could you talk us through the alternative? Why is it important to understand the common properties of interneurons, um, and even going so far as to uh, potentially even classify interneurons based on common origins? Right. Um, so there's, there's two ways of looking at that. One is a very practical reason, and the other one is kind of a scientific, genetics-based understanding of cell diversity. So the practical reason is... Uh, that we want to understand what these cells do, and in order to access that, we need to be able to target and manipulate specific populations. And genetics, and particularly developmental genetics, provides a unique and perhaps, uh, at least at present, I think, the best approach to being able to target specific populations and manipulate their functions so we can get an idea in awake-behaving animals what the consequence of those cells functioning differently is. The other side of it is, uh, and this is a conversation which we could have, but it would be a long one, is what do we mean by cell diversity? Um, and you, you kind of alluded to what I think is part of it, which is functional diversity. They somehow have an input-output function dictated by who connects to them, who do they connect to, and how they do a transformation between what impinges on them and what they do to others. But in the end, what a cell does is only relevant in the context of what many, many cells do. Um, so the whole genetic approach allows you, as populations, to manipulate that. The developmental genetic side of it gives you some idea of what are the rules by which intrinsic properties, such as how they fire um, and how they behave in a circuit, are connected with the extrinsic properties, who connects to them and who do they connect to. So since it's, since it's largely your body of work that's determined um, our understanding of the story, could you tell our listeners about what we know about the relative interplay between genetics and environmental factors that um, determine interneuron fate in early development? I guess one view is that um, interneurons are born intrinsically programmed, and uh, the other extreme is that they learn completely on the job um, based on, on extrinsic factors. Um, is it one or the other? Um, I, for a long time, I guess I was really pushing the, that they were essentially pre-programmed and came out knowing how they're going to wire into the network. Um, I was pretty influenced in thinking that way because of work in the olfactory system that I, I was really blown away with work from the Axolab and uh, 
colleagues showing that olfactory receptors expressing one receptor have axons that converge to this point in space in the olfactory uh, glomerulus, and that genetically, uh, somehow that receptor controls this incredible specificity of wiring. And it convinced me that perhaps the notion that activity was going to be really important was misplaced and that genetics was really going to basically create adversity that is pretty hardwired. I've softened on that position. I certainly recognize now that it's a strong interplay between the two, but it's a, bit, a false dichotomy to talk about environment versus genetic program because one influences the other influences the other. You only respond to an environment in a certain way because you have a genetic program and the way you respond determines how you then impinge on the environment, changing uh, in turn what kind of feedback you get. So the two are linked at the hip. However, they do function, in my mind at least, sequentially. There is an early program that has a lot to do with signaling at the molecular level through extrinsic signaling molecules, morphogens, to turning on very specific genetic codes, which determines a lot about the intrinsic properties of a cell. But at least I now believe um, a lot of the connectivity of that cell, um, the morphology of that cell, and perhaps many of the way it, uh, it, many of the ways it fires when it's excited may be strongly influenced by um, where it ends up in a network. So what do you think, Charlie? I, I... I think it's absolutely amazing that all the interneurons in the whole forebrain are all siblings and are so closely connected to each other developmentally. And I think we form, I know this is a different talk. That's fine. A different talk. But it's a good talk. We formerly thought of each interneuron being a, a sort of unique little hack was designed for this circuit to perform some kind of function, and there's a zillion different kinds of them because there are a thousand, zillion different little functional things that are required. And the, the, all the interneurons in the spinal cord were, were just amazed. They, they overwhelmed us. It's one of the reasons people, I think, sort of moved away from the spinal cord was the connections between interneurons were just too hard to figure out. There were so many different kinds of interneurons. And the and the cerebral cortex seemed just as bad, and most places in the forebrain seemed like maybe not as bad as the cerebral cortex, but still a mess. I did a Golgi study in the striatum in the 1980s, and we couldn't classify the interneurons. We, we ended up making up a, what I think was a more or less bogus classification <laughs> scheme uh, because there were too many, and we couldn't believe that there were that many different kinds of interneurons in the striatum. So in the striatum, do you guys? Yeah, I know in the cortex, the, uh, everyone in the field talks about the grouper, the the groupers, lumpers and splitters. Lumpers, lumpers and splitters. That's kind of exactly. what I wanted to get at with that first. That's question. right. So I was well, working, I was working with a graduate student who was a who was a splitter, and I was sort of a lumper, and we we just sort of battled it out about how many classes of interneurons there should be in the striatum. Looking back on it, I think he was right, and I was wrong. There were, there were, we ended up with nine classes. So being a splitter is, is, is closer to the truth. I felt, in that particular case, I'm not, uh, I, w I wouldn't want to say that across everything. Right. But in that particular case, I think this. So what do you mean by being a splitter, I guess? Because I could give you, say, I agree that the splitting into nine different types is right, but I would still say being a lumper 
is the right way to look at it because those nine different types uh, fall, let's, for the sake of argument, say into three different lumped categories where the difference between the three in a lumped category is all about stochastic interactions they happen yeah. to have during But that's the triumph of the splitter. When the splitter has like discovered what the, what the categories are, then the relationships between cells in different categories can be established. But as long as you're in denial about how many different kinds of cells there are, there's no problem. Okay, I'm going to give you a counterpoint <coughs> for that. So Peter Samoji has done a truly remarkable job. Peter Samoji, um, uh, Thomas Freund, Yuri Bajaki, and others uh, have done a wonderful job of classifying interneurons in the hippocampus. And they have types like the very famous OLM cell, which is defined based on where it gets input, the O, and where it get, puts output, LM. Well, guess what? There is no way you have an OLM cell in the cortex because you don't have an O and an LM. It's, it's so narrowly defined that trying to understand the, the properties between low-threshold cells like OLM, which are clearly a subtype of Martinotti cell, and a Martinotti cell in the cortex gets lost. So a splitter splits that, but by defining it anatomically, it completely loses the generality, which is, I think, where you're going to find out most of the information. So that's exactly what I was getting at, was that the, the way of categorizing interneurons, the old way of categorizing interneurons, had to do with their particular place in that particular circuit, right. and we thought of each one of them as unique, and we didn't think that's, that interneurons in the hippocampus were necessarily similar to the ones in the cortex, because there's no uh, O or LM in the cortex, right. Right? And the same thing was true with the striatum and amygdala and olfactory tubercle and lot, lots of other places where you, where everybody knew there were GABAergic inhibitory interneurons, but thought that each one of them was the product of that of the development of that particular circuit in a in a very unique way, and the discovery that all those interneurons are cousins, they were all born together and then migrated out to all of these places, means that you can have a categorization scheme like the kind you're talking about that's that's based on something other than it's the way it's integrated into that particular circuit in its final end state. And that, so you're a lumper again. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm, ref, I'm refusing to be lumped or split <laughs> in that way. Uh, but but the, 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 the incredible implication of that is, it seems to me incredible, that there could be a theory of interneurons in the forebrain. That you could kind of say, here's what interneurons of this general kind or for here's what their circuit function is and it might be true with like maybe little nuanced alterations as you move all the way around the forebrain all these different places you could say this interneuron does normalizing inhibition or something like that and that would be true for all so i tried i tried uh, uh going or tackling this issue i did a, a annual reviews in neuroscience with bernardo rudy and one of the things you run into very quickly is even if the cell has the same intrinsic properties and essentially the same synaptic properties, at least in its efferent connections, um, even assuming that it has the same number of afferent and efferent synapses, how it functions in a circuit, I, can, I absolutely refuse to believe can be predicted 
with those pieces of information. You have to know something about who's connecting it to and how those are connected in a circuit. And so while basket cell may have a fairly unitary way of firing at a given synapse and maybe even have a fairly unitary way of affecting a certain number of cells when it's stimulated, the difference is in what circuit's embedded in is going to change its function entirely. So for instance, I don't think basket cells are obligate feed-forward inhibition machines. In the piriform cortex, work from Jeff Isaacson shows they are feedback uh, circuits. So if your point is that this close cousin relationship of interneurons is going to tell us how they function in a general way in all circuits, I, I, I don't think that's true. I think they're going to function entirely different in different circuits, though there is something really interesting to be learned by understanding that your, your cousin from Virginia is up in the hippocampus um, wired up differently, and there's, those similarities will be interesting. But maybe, maybe that's why you don't want to be a lump or a splitter, because you recognize both sides of that coin. It sounds to me like what you just said is that then the fact that you're a lump or you, um, doesn't quite matter that much. It's I agree. One, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, th I, I guess think, we're all splitters in and there. Well, no. I think, uh, to be honest, uh, I think any argument is best served by giving the points for and against any given position. And, yeah, I think as a geneticist and as someone who's looking for the origins, it's just obvious that being a lumper is the most natural position for me to take. Whereas if you are a physiologist and the function like Charlie, being a splitter is the more natural thing because you're really digging deep and saying, what does this cell do in this circuit? And if he was going to go, and I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but if you went and looked in cortex versus striatum, you would have a fascinating list of what we call basket cell does in those two things, and it wouldn't be the same. So that, that seems to indicate that uh, you, know, you have a basket cell, depending on where you go, uh, the uh, environment will influence what you do, feed forward or, or what you just described. So getting back to uh, you know, your, your specialty in uh, uh, lineage analysis, some of your earlier work uh, used grafting, right? mm -hmm. the, the various eminences. Now can we refine that, uh, I know this hasn't been done and what's your take on it, we look at the cerebral cortex, for example, I look at it as a, a Cartesian coordinate grid, mm -hmm. right? Can you look at the developing eminences as a co Cartesian coordinate grid that has a, a corresponding place in the developing mm -hmm. cortex? So I would have strongly said no to that question, but there's a science paper that just came out from Songhai Shi where he did a lineage analysis and claimed that linearly related cells wire together in cortical circuits. And so there's a absolute point-to-point -point match between a given lineage of cells and where they end up in the circuit, kind of belying my argument that the interneurons from these eminences go everywhere. The counterpoint to that would be what well, you just said. There's, yeah, that, that is true, but it misses the point that there's already a point-to-point -point matching of where they're going to start and where they're going to end. So it's irrelevant because the ones going to the hippocampus are in a different part of the grid from the beginning and so uh, can have different properties. I personally don't believe that. I'm actually uh, trying to use some methods from Connie Sepko's lab to get at this where there's some the modern lineage tricks are um, have got to the point where it used to be you went in with a retrovirus that was replication defective, marked 
diluted it down so you got a single clone and came back at the end and said, are the ones from a given clone the same or different cells and how do they spread out? The extra fold that uh, Connie Sepko's work has done is she's been able to, using methods I don't really want to go into, allow the viruses only to infect cells from a given structure. Um, and maybe I should explain. The way it's done is you use a chicken replication defective chicken virus, which can't infect the brain at all. And then you put the receptor for that virus on the structure you want using uh, Cree driver to put that receptor on there. So now you have a virus that you can put everywhere, but can only infect one structure. And then if you can get it down to one clone, I can say, now I have a clone and now I know where it starts, which I didn't know before, and here's how it spreads out. And so the thing I'd like to get at is not the question Songhai Shi got at, how do cells that behave coherently um, uh, assemble? I want to know how cells that don't behave coherently integrate into circuits task. How much do they change? So I could really test this question of, does one common lineage give a cell to the hippocampus and the cortex? Does one common lineage give a striatal cell and a cortical cell? And the answer may be no. But I, I think that's the question that needs to be asked. You mean a common cell that, uh, that contributes to common a common... Common progenitor. That contributes to a common circuit. Um, or that's certainly, if you go read Sai, uh, Songhai Shi's paper on uh, lineages from the uh, medial ganglionic eminence, uh, he argues that they certainly move together and wire uh, disproportionately to one another in the same circuit. There are actually some heterogeneity in the cells that come out of that. Some are, are Martinotti and some are, are parvalbumin fast spikers, but they do wire together. Um, but of course, if you define a clone by being close together and any time a clone is far apart, you're not going to call it clone. You'll never show that clones can disperse and do different things. So the other part to Connie's method that's appealing is you put in genetic tags on there so you can, after doing your physiology, suck out the nucleus and um, using PCR sequence up the tag and show if tag of a cell in the hippocampus and a tag over here in the cortex are the same. Um, with, it, with a reasonable level of certainty, you can say they're related and they came from the same thing. So I don't know how those clones will spread, but that's something I really want to find out. It would be something if there was a little map of the whole forebrain in the medial ganglionic image yeah, and yeah, every cell. Location. Have you, have you ever seen the, the old chauvinist thing where, you know, they used to believe that, we, that genetic information came from the man and uh, people took sperm under microscopes and they, they convinced themselves there was a little baby tucked in there. A homunculus. A, a little homunculus, yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's not going to work out that way, but okay. <laughs> sure. It would be something if it did. It would be something if it did, yeah. So some of this uh, common origin stuff helps us to potentially reverse engineer um, things like autism and major sort of diffuse um, types of psychiatric disorders and such. Could you talk about some of that? Um, so I will say that um, I have a really incredible postdoc in my lab, a guy named uh, Luke Scholson, who uh, he's a psychiatry resident. Uh, he's unusual in that he did his PhD with a guy named Giro Messenbach. So Giro, uh, I think justifiably, could be called the father of optogenetics. Um, before Carl Deseroth or Ed Boyden or anyone else had done it, he had worked out a rather complicated system, which is why it didn't catch on, but of using uh, biophysics to engineer proteins to allow you to turn them on and off with light. Um, Luke 
is a real true believer. He really wants to create tools to deal with psychiatric disease. And um, one thing he's convinced me, and I'd be curious to hear your, your guys' opinion, is the idea that most psychiatric disease is focal in terms of its cellular origin. So you could imagine someone that's mentally retarded because they're lacking um, PSD-95 functions so that every excitatory cell is diminished by some fraction of its normal function. And there's just no way of helping this individual because every synapse is damaged and it just can't transmit or undergo the plasticity it could. And it may be that, as a matter of fact, it's almost certain that a certain degree of uh, psychiatric problem is so diffuse that it's un intractable. I would argue that a good chunk of it, and I'd go as far as to say, I think perhaps even the majority have more focal causes where uh, a great deal of the symptoms associated with a psychiatric disorder can be traced to the dysfunction of very few cell types. Um, and that if we could understand what kind of problems result when specific cell types are dysfunctioning, which I think is something the genetics of what I'm doing is very suited to, where you can disable or remove Martinotti basket cells, neurogliaform cells, and see what happens to the animal, you're going to have some hint at what kind of endophenotype you're going to get. And that may, in turn, give you a hint as to what would happen in a human were they to have that cell type misfunctioning. Now, if you turn that on its head and you start doing the stuff Luke wants to do and you bioengineer proteins where you can up the activity of specific cell types, I think you may have a really good shot at some therapies. Now, the caveat to me in that is I think you're nuts if you think you can guess what upping the activity of a basket cell is going to do to an individual with mental retardation. But what you could do is, through trial and error, see what helps and see what doesn't help and let lock kit fit key. So I, th I think that sort of approach really excites me. And I really like the idea that in my lifetime, we're going to start developing tools that allow us, through a combination of genetics and uh, drugs and viruses, manipulate cells in the brain and really uh, do something uh, worthwhile in terms of helping these diseases. So that's the thought. So focal doesn't mean focal spatially. It means focal in the space of cell classes. That's how I think focal. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that would explain, I mean, generally, neurologists have expected to, to everything to follow some kind of localization of function manner. Right? So if if your prefrontal cortex gets a stroke, you have a certain set of symptoms. If it's somewhere else, it's somewhere else. And the, the many of the disorders that were once called functional disorders were just thought to be ones that didn't have a place in the brain, but they could have a place in the cell type. In the space of cell types. And if cell types actually yeah. exist, yeah. yeah. So are, are, there, uh, are there ways that we could define cell types so as to give them a more concrete existence. I think that somatodendritic morphology was a traditional method for distinguishing cell types that was introduced by Cajal. It worked pretty well, and you know we, we mostly complain about how it failed, but it didn't fail in general. It just failed in some very uh, specific ways and specific places, but there's no question that the Purkinje cell is a 
it's in Salta. So, uh, so somatodendritic morphology just it is all there is. There's like when we can see the axon, we can use the axon to tell something. If we could see more about the cell, when when uh, you know uh, encephalin and carbavimin and markers like that became available, that really helped. So, so I want to tell you a story. Okay, good. This is uh, so in two thousand and three, I believe. Uh, Rafa Yusta took um, people from physiology, anatomy, and genetics and gathered us together in Patia, Spain. Um, so, quickie quiz, uh, what is interesting about the town of Patia in Spain? in a 15th century chapel. So there we were, 30 different scientists stuck in this chapel. Um, to make it even more bizarre, there was this crucifix in wood from the 16th century of Christ on the cross, bleeding from multiple nail wounds in his hand. And we sat around in that chapel for three days and discussed interneuron diversity and what's the best way of classifying it. And we were just about to start this on the first day when a very excited Peter Samoji jumped up in front of all of us and looked at us and said, so you guys are trying to do this where you're going to talk about everything you talked about, somatic dendritic morphology, connectivity, firing pattern, immunostaining, gene expression. And I just want you to know at the get-go, I just want you to understand that this is all in your imagination. These things do not exist. We looked at him not quite knowing where he was going with this. And he said, the thing is, the only thing that exists from uh, in reality is who connects to a neuron, who does it connect to, and how it fires in the context of a functioning circuit. And nothing you're going to describe is going to be a direct proxy for that. So it's all artificial. And I thought it was great, actually. I thought that was a really interesting starting point. Um, what do you think? Well, I think it's definitely true that what connects to you, who you connect to, and what you do is what's important for a cell, but somatodendritic morphology was uh, the closest call could get to who connects to you. Where the axon goes is as close as you could get to who you connect to. And, you know, to, to understand that the essential function of a neuron in its circuit is something we still haven't learned to do. And so we know what neurons do when you pass current pulses through them or something like that. And we see that they that they vary enormously in their response to those kinds of things. But it's um, we haven't even started to figure out what they do in the context of their, uh, how to characterize cell's physiological properties uh, in its natural context. So I, I think Peter was being provocative because what has he studied throughout his <laughs> entire life? <laughs> yeah, he was. And uh, I mean, in the end, uh, the, the problem I have, and so you might imagine that that meeting brought a lot, every lumper and splitter out of the woodwork. And it was interesting. There were certain individuals um, I talked to who refused to go to the meeting because they just thought that it was a complete waste of time to do this and that we were essentially arguing angels on the head of a pin. 
and then among the people who were there very predictably, you know, what to, to uh, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So to the anatomist, the anatomy was important. To the physiologist, that was important. Um, ultimately, if you want to know what came out of it, there was a Nature Neuroscience uh, article uh, called the, uh, the Patea Interneuron Nomenclature Group, PING for short, which uh, published in Nature Neuroscience where we came to some uh, uh, group idea about what, what was a neuron. The interesting part is they're now same group who did it, and I'm actually involved, so I guess by they, I mean me, um, is involved in an effort to, what they did was they, this is really kind of an interesting psychophysics experiment, where they collected the morphologies of as many neurons as they could find that people had reconstructed using camera lucida from literally hundreds of papers. And they did, I think the, the, the total number they had was somewhere around three or 400. And everyone who participated in this was given access to a uh, computer set which showed you those neurons and gave you a series of criteria to score them. And then you had to classify them. And so they kind of, uh, Riley told us that one of the most amusing outcomes of this is that many of the people scored neurons that they themselves had identified as something else differently when they did this. Uh, but anyway, that's a paper that's under review now. Uh, and uh, it, it, I think, if anything, it's going to show that, you know, there's certain ones where people did really well. So Martinotti cells, neurogliaform, and I think basket cells, small basket cells did well. But other ones did horribly, like uh, the VIP multipolar cells of whatever you want to, were awful. So it, you know, strength and weakness. So you have recent work where you've done, uh, you've isolated uh, gene expression mm -hmm. from early uh, um, interneurons that migrate into the cortex. You've identified a couple, you've done conditional knockout. It seems like uh, there are genes that affect one population of interneurons versus another that may show a specific behavioral phenotype. Can you elaborate on uh, whether, you know, one particular interneuron subtype can manifest in a specific behavior, uh, whereas another one can, you know? Right, so um, the, the example, first I just want to be clear in my terminology. Uh, there's a circular aspect to our arguments. We define the cells we get based on the genes that go in uh, that, that, that are expressed by them. And while the many these are often correlated to their physiological properties in the mature animal, their morphology in the mature animal, and their immuno, pro, immuno expression in the mature animal, um, to call it a given cell type is a judgment call. But with those caveats, I would say that it is pretty clear that when we target different interneuron populations, the animals have different behavioral outcomes. Uh, the most obvious behavioral outcome we get when we perturb interneurons, perhaps not surprisingly, is epilepsy. And the surprising thing, to me anyways, has been that the only time you get epilepsy in the mice is when you perturb a substantial population of the basket cell population. So there's an absolute correlation that Unless the genetic manipulation we, did, uh, we use perturbs upwards 50% of the basket cell population, um, you don't get seizures. And when it perturbs large amounts of populations that don't include that, well, 
it's obvious these animals are not abnormal. They do have some movement disorders. I'm sure they have many behavioral disorders that will come out as we look at it. They don't have seizures. So that at least says, um, without perturbing basket cells in large numbers, you won't get seizures, uh, at least from the interneuron point of view. I'm sure there are ways of getting it from other sources, like thalamus, thalamic bursting or something. When you said behavior, you mean phenotype, right? I mean, right. we don't really think that there's a turn left cell and a turn right cell and every different kind of behavior somehow maps onto cells. We sometimes think that behaviors map onto genes, but we don't think that they map onto cells. Well, it could affect a specific behavior depending on uh, where the defective interneuron may be, right? If you get, I, I don't know, if you can uh, knock out uh, one of these uh, genes in basket cells and another interneuron in the hippocampus, will they now fail in a radial arm test or something? Right, so I think, I so, think if you want to do those kinds of experiments, you don't want global manipulations. So if you want to understand what basket cells are doing, you don't wipe them out everywhere, you wipe them out in whatever area you want to study. So for instance, um, there are lots of properties one can attribute and one would assume is processed in primary auditory cortex, primary visual cortex. I think if you wanted to ask what they're doing in circuits, the thing to do is to define discrimination tasks that you assume occur at the cortical level, um, an ability to hear certain um, intensity changes or frequency changes, uh, which, you, again, I'm no expert in it, but you assume perhaps are encoded in the auditory cortex and make a task where they have to discriminate it and then focally probably using viruses and genetics in a hybrid fashion, silence those cells using methods that are now available and asking can they no longer discriminate. So it's not... I'm sure people do those experiments. I submit that those are crazy and that the outcome of them will be misinterpreted vastly. So imagine I think... So you think it's worthless to do that? That something good may come of it, but not what you just said. So for, it's a circuit. It's complicated. Imagine you took a radio and you snipped out all the, the transistors that were pointing this way and not the ones that are pointing that way. And then you something goes wrong with the radio, and now you say those transistors are the ones that did that, right? This transistor is responsible for the voice on the radio because when I pull it out, the voice goes away. And you're sort of imagining that there'll be another one that's responsible for the music on the radio, and you pull that out, and the music will stop, but the voices will keep going. That isn't how circuits work, and it isn't how brain circuits are going to work. So if you if that's, you, if that's, that's you how we understand you can do it. A global perturbation and you get well that's how we um, misunderstand the stuff we do with global perturbations too if you if you delete the dopamine cells and then ask what does dopamine do in the striatum what you find out is that the striatum doesn't work anymore after you delete the dopamine cells and if you delete the some interneuron in the cortex you can find out that piece of cortex doesn't work anymore does something crazy wrong but it doesn't tell well, what you what about the Tolstoy idea you know all happy families are the same all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. So, uh, you know, yeah, you take away the dopamine, the animal's unhappy, but not in a totally generic way. They're unhappy in a very specific way. That's a, uh, an, uh, that's a sort of a story we tell about dopamine, but that isn't the behavioral phenotype of dopamine. There's another story where you could have a, um, a physiologist who studies a frog, and he cuts off one of the frog's legs, 
and he claps his hand behind the frog and he jumps away a little bit and then he cuts off two legs and he jumps away a little less and finally he gets to the point where he cuts off all four legs and the frog doesn't jump away anymore and the conclusion is after cutting off all four legs the, the frog, frog is got dead. totally deaf <laughs> and just done now all right yeah okay correlation is not causation yeah. I, I agree so i just think these circuits are pretty complicated and and if we we, we certainly couldn't figure out how electronic circuits work by deleting individual i'm going to take out all the resistors i'm going to take out the capacitors and figure out how well let's uh, let me put the question to you differently then so um I'm, I'm a, a small startup company in mainland China, and I decide I want to compete for the iPhone, so I go buy a few iPhones, I deconstruct it, uh, look at what each of the parts do, and I make my own iPhone. Now it works just like an iPhone. So, so uh, you don't have to see what each part does to do that. And in fact, worrying about what each part does to do that will actually mess you up. Yeah, probably. You just want to take the, mm -hmm. the iPhone, make a part-by-part -part copy of it, don't ask how it works. Just build it, but don't leave any one part out as an experiment, because the iPhone won't work after you do that. Every single part in the iPhone is required, because the engineer went through there to save money, removed every unnecessary part. So the chip count is an important engineering design center. You're trying to lower and lower is better. So everything that can be removed has been. So, so how do we learn about anything until unless we reduce it to? You know, an individual cell, an individual region of the brain. Well, right? electrical engineers are not discouraged by what I just said. They have ways of understanding the electronic circuits by understanding the the operation of the entire circuit by writing out the equations for the parts and and connecting them up. So I think uh, if a if an iPod has to be understood by writing out the Mathematical equations of how the parts interact with each other because it's too complicated to intuitively understand. <coughs> I'm pretty sure the brain is going to work. Let, let me give you the geneticist argument, what you said. So, uh, geneticists often do gain and loss of function experiments. And certainly, I think you could argue that if you want to know what a gene did, the gain and loss of function experiments often give you good hints. But if you talk to a geneticist, most what they get, most what they get excited about are allelic series. So if you're not familiar with that, they essentially take a gene and they tweak it so it functions everywhere from perfectly normally, or maybe even to 110 percent of normal. So that's a gain of function, normal, and then 90, 80, 70, 60, all the way down to zero. And where I really learned something about a gene is by looking at the variation of function from 115 percent down to zero. Is that, in your mind, the right way to tackle circuits? Sure, it's a good thing. But the, the nice thing about the gene is that you know the important thing that you're messing with, which is copy number. So if you're looking at a neuron, what's the important thing that you're messing with? Do you think it's spike number? Maybe the cell spike timing is what matters. Maybe it's whether the cell fires in bursts or not. So you basically don't know the you don't know the variable that you want to change, like. Uh, in order to do that experiment, so we, if we, if we are totally sold on on average spike rate as the way that cells encode things, then we could just delete spikes. We could hyperpolarize the cell so it makes half as many spikes, quarter as many spikes, ten percent of the spikes, and we could have an experiment that's like the one you described. So you, you, what you threw back at me is the experiment like I described. What I didn't hear, we have two physiologists in the room. Carlos, Charles, uh, Charlie. Uh, 
I what 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 do you advocate as the best approach to gaining a deeper understanding for how the nervous system or are you saying there is no one best approach there's a hundred approaches each of which will give you something and list a few both of them well at least for the dopamine cells we have some idea of what it might the 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 one thing that might be important and that's how they burst and whether they burst or not important for what Important for uh, behavior as in, in, in you and I as people as as animals. So um, at least for those that cell type, we have a direct relationship between um, the activity of one cell and the behavior of an animal. And 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 we have a theory behind how. So how did you come to works. the conclusion that the bursting was of all the things that Charlie mentioned, a right. neuron might be able to do? Bursting is the one we should all. Jointly well, decided for, for the one for the dopamine cells. That's not going to be for all cells. But why, but why even for the dopamine? For the dopamine cell, at first we had correlational data, which is basically that an, an animal, as he learned to predict a reward with a predictor, um, the bursting of the cell would change. So either the cell would burst if the reward was more than predicted, or the cell would stop bursting or stop firing altogether if the reward was less than predicted. Um, furthermore, uh, now with optogenetics, um, the Dyserov lab was able to actually induce reward-related behavior by um, stimulating those cells um, directly. And, and they did a difference between stimulating the cells as single spikes in, in the same amount of time or the same number of spikes but clustered in bursts. And they could induce reward related behavior. So there's also a causal relationship between that. But I'd be like, too cynical to say that that, that that sounds a little bit like the frog that, that couldn't hear because of no legs. I mean, you, yeah. yes, the, you, everything you said is true, but uh, correlation is not causation. So. There's also a relationship between dopamine release and bursting yeah. so that you could see that the release of dopamine per action potential has a, an abrupt shift. Mm-hmm. When yeah. bursting and when not bursting. So, but yeah, but it, it is causal when, when they, you know, they, you can activate GABAergic neurons that project to dopamine cells. And this is a recent paper from Stuber's lab where they uh, actually can disrupt behavior, um, reward-related behavior. As an animal um, begins to initiate reward-related behavior, like walking towards a piece of food, they can actually stop the animal from doing it. And where the work with these rough lab is where they activate them directly, they can initiate the behavior. So here, rather than just cutting off the um, frog's legs, you're able to make the legs a little bit longer or make the legs a little bit shorter and everything. So now the frog will still jump away. Um, so you won't come up with a conclusion that he'll be deaf, but you'll come up with a conclusion that maybe the legs have something to do with jump distance or something like that. So um, was enough listening in on the so dopamine cells conversations yeah. to basically understand the language that it's using. So, so we have some idea about the language of it. and But it, it's, it's directly analogous to your, um, uh, what was it, allelic? Uh, allelic series. Allelic series thing, where yeah. you, can, you can basically turn the volume up and down on these things and, and then see what's, what's really going on. So you need to pick your parameter and then adjust the parameter over a series of levels while listening in and how the conversation changes from the behavior to the cell is a way you both would agree is a satisfying way to understand circuits. The key is being able to agree on that parameter. This is just what Charlie is saying. Because if we pick, for example, um, globus pallidus neurons, then bursting may have nothing to do with how they work. Maybe it's spike rate or maybe it's spike timing. 
So, like so that. in uh, the reason why uh, you know modern molecular genetics and development has advanced significantly, there were two general approaches using reverse and forward genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's if you know a system, you, you know should, all. You the, should define what those two terms mean. So, so in reverse genetics, is you know the genes, the the players, and you know that you'll manipulate it and look at the outcome. Um, uh, excuse me, that's forward genetics. Uh, reverse, getting mixed up. Reverse genetics is uh, um, doing a random mutation. Did I, did I you got it backwards. <laughs> for, for, forward genetics is uh, uh, gene targeting. No, that's reverse genetics. Reverse genetics. Okay, it's it's, it's complicated. So reverse genetics is you know the players and you you're gonna manipulate and see how it affects the system, whereas the the converse is forward the, genetics. Forward genetics, you do the the a random mutation and see what what happens. In your transistor analogy, right? It seems like you already know what. Uh, what the outcome is. It's a transistor radio and uh, you know it plays music, right? And it seems like that in order for you to understand the music, you're gonna have to take it apart. But we don't know how the transition uh, transistor radio came about. So I think you need both complementary approaches, right? To understand how the circuit works. You know, how did the, the players you know, what is their origin? How do they come about? In order to do that is to do specific genetic manipulations and at the end, see the, the outcome and then manipulate the, the, the player. So I think the one of the points, correct me if you guys disagree with this, the physiologists in the room might argue back to you, and we'll see if they do or don't, that the properties they're interested in are not tangible things like genes. There's a gene, it has a location, it has a sequence, it encodes a protein, or generally that's the case. They're saying, no, no, I'm, there are emergent properties in these cells which exist because you can measure them, they're quantifiable, but they're not entities like a gene is an entity. And so it's a false analogy to say you can tackle it the same way. Is that? Yeah, it's not material, it's dynamic, it's a signal. It's a, so, I mean, there, I'm sure that, that there are equivalent things in genetics where um, the interactions among genes cause a gene to be transiently expressed and then go away. And, the, and you can't just say, um, and, and if that happened over and over again, which I, maybe it doesn't happen very much, so that it was, it, it was sending out a message of dots and dashes, then you, you knock out that gene, you knock out the entire message, you can't ask what word in that message was that gene because it, it wasn't. It was a temporal pattern of expression. Maybe not, no gene works like that. No, no, absolutely. There's, right. a, for instance, notch oscillations. Right, right. Uh, I was thinking, so this, the, the appearance of somites right. seems to occur through a cycling expression where notch turns on and turns off and turns on and turns off. And if you got rid of that cycling, you kind of conclude notch makes somites. Legs make mice, uh, frogs here. Uh, it's not true. It's the cycle that that is yeah. making the somites. And if you disrupt the cycle, you disrupt. And yes, you'd be correct formally to say notch makes somites. But in some ways, you you'd be correct if you didn't overstate it that legs make frogs react to clapping. Right. Exactly. 
So notch is, is the medium in which that signal is being sent more than that signal itself. And the, so the circuits are a medium in which signals are being generated. I, I think it's a, it's a very tough problem, that it, and, and I really am not enthusiastic about using some kind of lesion method, no matter how focused, to figure out dynamic, how dynamic systems with feedback work. I, but it's worth trying, you know? You try stuff. I think it would be very interesting to inject signals, though, into things like that. So if you're, a, if you're trying to fix a broken radio, a good approach is to like, follow one of these time-varying signals until it stops. Uh, I was advised once when trying to fix some broken electronic equipment in my youth to lick my finger and run it along the circuit board and I should feel a little shock. And when the shock stops, that's where there's a problem. Did it work? Yeah. It did. You use, your audio you use your finger as a voltmeter. As a voltmeter, sort of for audio signals where you could feel the electrical signal. The transistor that was broken, the audio signal wouldn't go beyond that. And it would, this, um, this was like a rough, this is the rough way to do it. But the, the, you can also inject signals into circuits and follow their propagation through the circuit. And I think those kinds of techniques are the kind that we need to foster. We could use we can use the same things you're thinking about, optogenetic methods, but instead of just making things go more, things go less, we could try to create some patterns. Instead. So can I ask you, I, I, in a moment of hubris, I read uh, uh, Corticonics. Uh -huh. Wonderful book, yeah. Wonderful book. And uh, one of the things, exercises, uh, they put you through on that are... I'm going to mispronounce Abies. Abelis. Abelis puts you through is making you really think about how the propagation of a signal goes from one neuron to the next to the next. And what uh, was very humbling to me was realizing that unlike your circuit in a radio where you can follow the signal until it stops, in a cortex, any cell fires because of the coincident firing of some subset of the neurons that impinge on it without a certain uh, another subset being too inhibitory to stop it over a certain period of time, leading to the happy event that we get uh, reach threshold and it fires, and then it starts all over again. And so that one of the calculations he had you go through was what's the probability of a signal starting at the at, at a first neuron still being transmitted a few neurons down there, and it very quickly got me thinking about why any sort of thought of a neural circuit as a serial connected thing is just useless. So while I, I like the idea of electronics being our best analogy, um, until we have electronics that have and or gates everywhere, so I guess a computer is a better analogy. Is, does Actually, that, the, the analogy does break down because the device, electronic devices have few inputs. But that's exactly what you just said. So even an AND gate, you can buy AND gates that got multiple inputs, but we don't. We use two inputs, one output, that's how we do AND, except in rare exceptions. But neurons are never like that. It's always tons of inputs exactly. and yeah. output. Curse of dimensionality again. Yes. Here we are. <laughs> I, I want to bring it back to development and away from, um, from physiology. This idea of timing of development is so critically important that things happen in, in sort of 
you, know, you have these, these key players, these certain molecules that come on and off at various times, and a lot of them are reused, so at time A, they do one thing, and then at time, you know, you know whatever, they do something completely different. Um, Genes are pleiotropic. Exactly. So um, I guess my question is, where, where does this master regulation come from? Is the idea that, that things are deployed and that each, each event sort of regulates the next event, or is there some sort of... Um, you know, sort of correcting factor, like, you know, like activity for electrical activity, for example, can sort of bring things back, because you can sort of imagine things kind of going off crazily if, if you have so sort I, of... I'm going to take this question in two ways and tell me if it's... Yeah, I'll, I'll try doing it briefly. One, I detest the concept of master regulators. And I, I would point out that scientists, whether they admit it or not, invoke God in everything, whether it be artificial intelligence where you have a teacher or developmental biologists where you have an organizer. Even the concept of a morphogen implies that a molecule has knowledge in concentration. So systems don't work that way. They don't uh, evolve that way, whether it be a brain or evolution. The truth is you have complex interactions that occur, get selected for. The only teacher is survival and selection. and if you really want to think hard about the rules of a system, ask what it needs to do to replicate. So I will make a point that one of the problems we run into in neuroscience is we use models to study from Sinorhabditis elegans, a worm, to the fruit fly, to a mouse, to a human. And there are orders of magnitudes difference in the evolutionary strategies they need to survive. If you are a fly, you squat on a leaf, drop out 200 eggs, and you're gone. And as long as a couple of those survive, we're all good. The strategies in signaling that will allow two out of 100 to survive to get to the next generation, let's say three, so it can be a growing generation, are entirely different from a woman and a man who spend 10 months creating a baby, which will not survive till the age of five without a lot of nurturing. So the point I'm making is, if you really want to understand the constraints on a system, you have to ask what it needs to do to survive. And that is going to change dramatically depending on whether you're a human being or a fly. And it's not to say you can't learn lots about the nervous system from a fly, but you can't learn about the error correction systems in a fly nervous system when it's not constrained by the same ones as a human. So I, I'm just making an argument that every system is going to teach you something but uh, there are no master regulators, and the way a system shapes itself back and forth can only be accessed through asking about the evolutionary constraints it takes to propagate. How's that? That's awesome. That was, yeah, it's a great note to end on. Thank you. I'll never have to ask that question again. Thank you, Gord, for being with us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks. Thanks. That was a wow, that was epic. Mm -hmm.